On our earth, before writing was invented, before the printing press was invented, poetry flourished. That's why we know that poetry is like bread. It should be shared by all, by scholars and by peasants, by all our vast, incredible, extraordinary family of humanity. That was Pablo Neruda. I'm Bob Holman. And this is the Poetry is Bread podcast, where poetry challenges us, makes us think, and with imagination and courage, changes the world. Today, the poetry of possibility with Ed Hirsch and Idra Novi, two poets whose sensibilities encompass both the lyrical and the socially conscious. For Ed Hirsch, the job of being a poet is a real job. With a job description, he's fulfilled with his years writing the nationally distributed Poet's Choice column for the Washington Post, his A Poet's Glossary, an encyclopedia of poetics, his study of Duende, the demon and the angel searching for the source of artistic inspiration, which is a masterclass in how poems, indeed all art, is born. In his own poetry, Hirsch covers territory ranging from a deep-dive interpretive investigation of the Orpheus myth to the intensely personal, the death of his son, his recent book, Gabriel. Honored to have you here, Ed Hirsch, here at Poe Poe Podcast Central. <laughs> Greetings, maestro. It's nice to be with you. Thanks, Bob. Oh, Thanks for the wonderful introduction. Ed, so happy to have you here. Ed, let's start before the beginning. How did it begin for you, Ed? How did the reality of being a poet dawn on you? What, what poem or poets showed you the way? I really have, I guess I have two stories here for you of two moments of beginning that are different. One, I was a sophomore in high school. I didn't know anything about poetry. I, I was overwhelmed by feelings that I didn't understand. I started crying all the time. I couldn't sleep. I must have been suffering from some kind of trauma of coming out of childhood, but I wouldn't have been able to articulate it. Anyway, I started to write, and it made me feel better. And I wrote it in lines. And I called it poetry. (laughs) (laughs) Beautiful. You invented the damn thing. So I I invented poetry, (laughs) but I was calling it poetry. So, um, and girls liked it. Ah. it. So, but when I was a freshman in in college, I went to Grinnell College in Iowa. I brought my poems to my freshman humanities teacher named Carol Parsonen. And she basically said to me, look, you, you could be a poet. You, you have the, the feeling and the imagination and the intelligence, but what you're writing is not poetry. You're just writing your feelings down. It's, you're not making anything. The oldest term for poetry is poesis in Greek, which means making, and you're not making anything. You're just writing. And so if you want to write poetry, you need to read poetry. You need to put yourself into the stream of poetry. And I hadn't read very much poetry. It didn't occur to me that to write poetry, I should read poetry. And I mean, I'd read some things. Anyway, I decided whenever I would hear of name of someone, I'd go and read them. And if you do that for 50 years, you do learn something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, someone mentioned a poet named Gerard Manley Hopkins. I'd never heard of him. So I went to the library. I took the book back to my, got a book of his. I took it back to my dorm room. 
I read a poem that begins, I wake and feel the fell of dark, not day. What hours, oh, what black hours we have spent this night. What sights you heart saw, ways you went. And more must and yet longer lights delay. With witness I speak this. Where I say hours, I mean years, mean life. And my lament is cries countless, cries like dead letters sent to dearest him, alas, who lives, alas, away. I am gall, I am heartburn. It goes on like that. That poem just went completely through me. It, it was as if Hopkins was articulating some desolation that I'd felt in myself that I couldn't name. And I just started looking and go, how did he do this? And then I go, holy cow, this thing's a sonnet. He's not just writing out his poems the way I'm writing out mine. This thing's written, he constructed it. And I decided, I'm going to try and do that. I'm going to try and write like Gerard Manley Hopkins, which of course is a terrible idea, (laughs) terrible, terrible, bad idea. But from the moment that I tried to imitate Hopkins and tried to make something, I started to become a poet instead of just a person who was writing. I wasn't writing good poems but I was trying to make something for the first time. That's it. And making, you know, it's, it's, it's the irony of course of making, because in making a poem, you're basically not making anything, you know, the, it's just a collection of words that are there. It's not like you're making the cyclos, like Homer making the Homeric cycle or the wheel of it all, you know, it's this um, intangible thing. Yeah. Um, you know, Steve Cannon over at Gathering of the Tribes once said to me, don't ever let your, let you, let your students read Gerard Manley Hopkins, <laughs> because if you do, it's going to change their life and it's going to make them be something that they're not. And of course, when I was in Wales, I, I visited, uh, the, you know, where he was a Jesuit yeah. there. And I want to say that your reading of it, you know, Hopkins came up with this outrageous idea of sprung rhythm. Your reading of it has the best sprung rhythm of Hopkins <laughs> I've ever heard. It's basic, sprung rhythm is basically essentials. It's basically the same. He just is, is transporting. I mean, he gave it his own thing, but he's transporting it from Anglo-Saxon. Well, I think he's translated, transporting it actually from, from the Celtic, from the yeah. Welsh. You yeah. see, that's yeah. the same, the same yeah. thing um, that Dylan Thomas did. That's he right. heard those kind of rhythms and brought it through, you know cries countless boom 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 you know and also putting the cry crcr in there that's the way that the kanhanath of the welsh is 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 going to work anyway we're getting way off of the way into the poetry universe here folks i hope you got the ears for it listen you studied to be a folklorist when you were in 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 college how does that relate to your poetry um It was actually when I graduated from college, I went to graduate school. I went to graduate school and got a PhD in folklore. Um, I felt I'd already studied a lot of English literature and I wanted to expand the universe and uh, of what I knew. And I I was interested in oral poetries and I just, I knew a lot about written poetry already by then. And I just decided, oh, I don't know anything about folklore. I think I'll go study that and try and find out about oral poetries from around the world. And it just changed and widened my idea of what I don't know how much it's affected my own practice, but it changed my idea of what, what, what poetry is. And when I wrote a poet's glossary, um, I included terms, poetry terms from all around the world, oh, yeah. from oral as well as written poetry. Wonderful, wonderful encyclopedia there. Um, what kind of poetry were you writing then? Could you read us one of your early poems? This is a poem 
This is the first poem I wrote when I was 25 that I realized was different than everything else I'd written. It was the first poem that I felt sounded like me. I don't know exactly what that meant, but I thought it doesn't sound like anyone else. It sounds like what I'm trying to find, but I didn't know what that was. This is called Song. This is a song for the speechless, the dumb, the mutant, the motley, the unmourned. This is a song for every pig that was too thin to be slaughtered last night, but was slaughtered anyway. Every worm that was hooked on a hook that it didn't expect. Every chair in New York City that has no arms or legs and can't speak English. Every sofa that's been ever been torn from part by the children or the dog and earmarked for the dump. Every sheet that was lost in the laundry. Every car that has been stripped down and abandoned. Too poor to be towed away. Too weak and humble to protest. Listen. This song is for you even if you can't listen to it or join in, even if you don't have lungs, even if you don't know what a song is or want to know. This song is for everyone who is not listening tonight and refuses to sing. Not singing is also an act of devotion. Those who have no voices have one tongue. Great, great poem. Uh, you know, and here it is. Um, your generosity that comes through in the poetry, but also in the way that poetry is your life, is what I get out of that. Of course, the use of the, the listen in it also, when you go back to Beowulf, when you tell people to wake up, but then give it off to the those not listening. You're giving it to everyone, just the way in your life, with the work that you do for other poets, for poetry itself, in the glossary that we've talked about, in the in the column that you wrote, in in all of the, um, the 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 how to read a poem and your collection of of, uh, of favorite poems, um, what is it that that pulls you away? That makes you write not just for yourself, but as gifts for the poetry community. What is it that pulls you there? We're part of something. I always wanted to be part of something. And I found when I read other poets that I felt a community of people who were oddballs, left out, lonely. And I found when I read lonely poems, they made me feel more companion, not more lonely. And when I read desolate poems like the Hopkins one, I didn't feel more desolate. I felt understood. And I, wanted, I didn't know any poets when I started, but I wanted to belong to this community. Ezra Pound said all poets are contemporaneous. And what he meant by that is poets from different countries, poets from different time periods, the living and the dead. It's all part of one. And I wanted to be part of that community. I'm not sure exactly why, but it was a family that I adopted rather than the family I was born into. And I wanted to be part of that family. And I wanted the family to include everyone. And, and I think in that way, I'm very American, that it's a dem I have a democratic idea that everyone should be part of it, that everyone can join in, that all voices count, um, not just English voices, not just American voices, but voices from everywhere. And I just wanted to start finding out, well, let's see what everyone is doing in the community. What are people doing? <laughs> what are people doing over there? Let's see what the, what the poets in Africa are doing in their tribal poetries. Let's see what the poets of Ghana are up to now. Let's see mm. what Native American poets were doing, you know, tens of thousands of years ago. And I, I just found... It comforted me and it interested me, and I wanted to be part of that group. Oh, yeah, that's, uh, you know, you just send me zinging around uh, 
the way that the cantos does all through all time periods through all languages you know i mean it's uh, frank o'hara on his on his way out of town on uh, the day lady died um said the same thing wonder what the poets in africa are exactly. doing exactly i want to see what the know? poets of ghana are doing today yeah he bought new world writing let's yes, see what the exactly, poets of ghana are. Exactly. exactly let's see what you they're know? up to yeah well, you and i share this you uh, and i share this idea yeah it's a uh, Let's, okay, all you poets out there, time to uh, settle down and write a poem. And I want you to be inspired here by Ed Hirsch and Duende, which is a word that's difficult to translate. You wrote a book about it. How would you define Duende? Um, it's quite a different way in your poems than in Lorca's, I think. I, I got the term, we don't have an equivalent yeah. in, in English. The term I got was from Garcia Lorca. Um, he had a theory of the duende. It's a term that he didn't make up. Um, in All over Latin America, duende is like an imp, like a golem. It's like mm. someone who steals your keys, mm. a little trickster. But in from Andalusia, where Lorca is from, it meant something else. It was a kind of artistic inspiration. And the thing that makes it very Spanish um, and that I picked up from is that in Lorca's term, what it means, it's not just in poetry, by the way, it's in all arts. It's something like artistic inspiration in the presence of death. What this means for Lorca is that there's a moment where the irrational takes over, the unconscious takes over. Robert Graves says, in speaking about poetry, I must speak about what's conscious and unconscious, what's rational and irrational. You can't have one without the other. This is poetic thinking as opposed to, say, philosophical thinking or logical or essayistic thinking. Poetic thinking is associative. Keats calls it non-consecutive. For Lorca, non-consecutive reason, reasoning or associative reasoning is in the presence of something inspirational. But in Lorca's case, and in the Spain, where he's getting it from southern Spain, it's not, an, it's not an inspiration that comes down from above. It rises up from underneath. It comes up from the earth. It's kind of a scorched earth, and it puts you in the presence of death. So it's the mind takes off. It leaps to somewhere else in the presence of this mortal panic or fear or darkness that changes the way you, the, the, the way you think. So you'd say that, say, I would say Andre Breton, the great mm -hmm. French surrealist, does not have duende. But Cesar Vallejo, the great Peruvian surrealist, he does have duende. He does write in the presence of death. And of course, Lorca's a master of this in his Poeta in Nueva York, in Poet in mm -hmm. New York, where he comes to New York and he's just shocked by what he sees mm -hmm. and writes this sort of death-defying poetry. I'd like to stay for just a minute with uh, that with uh, with Breton and his automatic writing, and the uh, the way that you know because it it feel it's 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 huge and it's subtle, isn't it? It's he too is taking things directly that are coming to him. It's that question of for I guess. Where does Breton get his from everywhere, from the subconscious, yeah. as opposed to the earth? Is that what we're talking about? I mean, they're yeah. both beginnings and full inspiration. But I believe that Breton himself as a poet is somewhat willed, whereas other poets influenced, French poets influenced by Breton, say Robert Desnos mm -hmm. or Paul Eluard or Louis Aragon, they're not willful. 
they really do bubble up from the unconscious and they're closer to um, this irrational logic that I think you get in Lorca and with the, and the Spanish and Latin American surrealists. I guess uh, that has to do with uh, how Breton kicked Artaud out of the surrealist. <laughs> he wouldn't. Get, he took back his surreal. You had to have a carry a card to say you were a card carrying surrealist. He, he started to have surrealist trials uh-huh. uh, in which someone was put on put on trial for whether or not they were surreal enough um, in terms of how the unconscious operated. I think that's sort of defying the spirit of the irrational. All right, all right, all right. You got me. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, how about, uh, do you have anything inspired by Duende or a poem that relates to, uh, relates to Duende? Well, I'll, I mean, I don't know if you can say your own poem has Duende. Um, Good. You, you, but, all right. I uh, want all you people yeah. out there who are writing Duende poems to stop right I mean, now. No, I, I, don't, I don't mean you shouldn't try to. I'm just saying that because it's a kind of inspiration, I don't think you can claim it for yourself. But you can, you can talk about the moments where you think it happened or where something happened to you, where you're in the presence of something. And I thought I'd read a poem that I felt something akin to this. My friends don't get buried. My friends don't get buried in cemeteries anymore. Their wives can't stand the sadness of funerals, the spectacle of wreaths and prayers, tear-soaked speeches delivered from the altar, all those lies and encomiums the suffocating smell of flowers filling everything. No more undertakers in black suits clutching handkerchiefs, old buddies weeping in corners, telling off-color stories, nipping shots. No more covered mirrors, black dresses, skull caps and crucifixes. Sometimes it takes me a year or two to get out to the backyard in Sheffield or Fresno. Those tall ashes scatter under a tree somewhere in a park somewhere in New Jersey. I am a delinquent mourner stepping on pine cones, forgetting to pray. But the mourning goes on anyway, because my friends keep dying without a schedule, without even a funeral, while the silence drums us from the other side. The suffocating smell of flowers fills everything, always. The darkness grows warmer, then colder. I just have to lie down on the grass, and press my mouth to the earth to call them so they would answer. From, from the get-go there, I couldn't see anything but Ukraine and hear the voices of Ukrainian poets uh, like Siri Jadan um, and what's going on right now. I mean, I, I know that poem is you know, not recent, um, but there is that feeling that comes through it that is so of the moment. Well, I mean, I think also COVID, where people start having stopped having funerals oh. and people kept dying. This I wrote this before because literally what happened is some of my friends, their wife, they just stopped having funerals. They just got buried in their backyards and people didn't want to have funerals anymore. Um, but this is became this became a kind of near universal where people couldn't go to funerals. And now, I mean, what you're talking about in Ukraine is absolutely the case. And what I found, my poem, my, my poem finds that there's no, if there's no funeral, there's no way to mourn. There's no closure. And yet you still are mourning. And, and that's what I felt. The, without, no, without, suddenly we'd given up the rituals. And so I didn't have any rituals. But my friends kept dying and I kept feeling the grief. And so 
the poem tries to put me in this, put me in the space yeah. and the presence yeah. of my friends dying without any acknowledgement, without any, any recognition. And of course, it's just a brutal situation happening to poets in Ukraine now yeah. and people in yeah. Ukraine. So, Duende in the digital age, do you see the imp in the machine? I mean, what I would say is that um, we have bodies, and 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 the bodies are mortal, and that poetry comes out of the body, and that we'll always have this sort of grief and celebration about being human, celebratory that we're here, grief that it's passing, and so I don't think the digital age for all of its tremendous gifts and its creativity, even I think computer poetry is super interesting, but it only gives you a kind of linguistic game. It doesn't come out of the body. And as long as we have bodies and as long as we have our lives as real people in the world, then I don't think digital life can possibly change that experience that we feel that we have people that we love and that they pass and that there's something unbearable about it to us, something we need to hold on to, which has to do with memory. You know, for, for me, I see the digital age as, as third consciousness, you know, orality, texts, literacy, and now we're moving into, I don't even think it's going to be called digital, ultimately, whatever this is, but where things move through these devices like this. Um, and yet... Poetry seems to be at the, uh, has its way with, with all of them. It's the essence, it, and, and all three of them seem to be, it's not like we're making any progress. It's this. both very old and very new. Um, you don't progress, but you change. Um, Eliot said, art doesn't get better, it never improves, but it does change. And we can't do better than Homer, we can't do better than Sappho. Um, but there are conditions that we need to describe now that they couldn't describe. And so there's always a need for new poetry, a new contribution from a new generation of people. And there's always reason to, to, to turn also to the people who came before us, to our ancestors in poetry, um, who you know, share the, were generous enough to share their lives with us. Well, I'm, I'm thinking now about Gabriel. I'm thinking about your book that is one of the... Is, searingly personal the, about the death of your son um, and how that, uh, it's situated right exactly in the world that we're talking about right now. Um, could you talk about that or read a poem or both, please? Um, after Gabriel died, um, I was completely undone. Um, he was 22. For a year, I couldn't do anything, and and so I tried to. I kind of made a document, um, of writing down his life because it all kind of blurred to me. And I made a document, but it wasn't a book. And then I decided to write some poems out of it. Um, and then I decided to go all in, and I decided that instead of trying to make poetry more, try to try to make trying to make Gabriel more like poetry, I should try to make poetry more like Gabriel. And there were a whole sort of Gabriel, all Gabriel's friends. I didn't see them in American poetry. There's a kind of teenager sort of 
difficult teenager, wild teenager, just you don't see in American poetry. And I go, why not? Um, everyone recognized this kind of kid, but they're not in our literature, not very much. And so I decided to see what I could do to try and bring Gabriel al alive. And so my book, it's a father's book. It tells Gabriel's story, not the way Gabriel would tell it, but or the way that my ex-wife would tell it, um, but the way his mother would tell it, or even the way one of his friends would tell it. It's, it's my book telling his story. Um, but all the time that I was telling it, I was also thinking that I wanted to acknowledge that I'm not the only one um, that this has happened to. And two things happened. One, I decided to create a kind of chorus of my people. I started thinking about what other poets had gone through who had lost children. I mean, I didn't go to the library. I just started remembering mm. poets who'd lost children. And that becomes a kind of chorus in, in the book. And the whole time I was writing it, I was also looking for a metaphor for what, it, what grief is like. And the poem I'm going to read you is toward the end of the book. And it's about what Freud calls the work of mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, and what that's like. I did not know the work of mourning is like carrying a bag of cement up a mountain at night. The mountaintop is not in sight because there is no mountaintop. Poor Sisyphus grief. I did not know I would struggle through a ragged underbrush without an upward path because there is no path. There's only a blunt rock with a river to fall into and time with its medieval chambers, time with its jagged edges and blunt instruments. I did not know the work of mourning is a labor in the dark we carry inside ourselves, though sometimes when I sleep, I'm with him again, and then I wake. Poor Sisyphus grief, I'm not ready for your heaviness cemented to my body. Look closely and you will see almost everyone carrying bags of cement on their shoulders. That's why it takes courage to get out of bed in the morning and climb into the day. Beautiful poem. Thank you, Ed. Thanks. I'm trying to summarize what it is to grieve, and you realize that no one escapes, and that the only reason people look normal or ordinary is because you don't know them. Everyone is carrying something around. People often hide it, but it's a tremendous weight for everyone because no one goes unscathed. No one gets out alive. No one, everyone suffers losses. And the way we carry it takes courage. Jazz. Uh, cement moves from the bag you're carrying to actually encasing the body. That's right. It's when everyone who knows grief or depression knows what that's like. It yeah. just completely weighs you down. Those days where you can't get out of bed, yeah. where you're so overtaken with grief, that you're so overwhelmed. That's why I said it takes courage to get out of bed in the morning. <laughs> and what, and go into the work of the morning? Is that what you said? That's right. Yeah. Oh, that's climb beautiful. into the day. Climb, climb into the climb day. Into the now, day. okay. Gonna now we're going to climb into the day exactly. here. Exactly. We're going to um, climb into the day. The, yeah. You know, the, uh, this, this podcast takes its inspiration from Neruda. And I want to I get your take on, on, uh, on Neruda's work, both as a... Uh, um, a, a poet of joy and climbing into the work of the day, as well as a political poet, you know? Um, can you uh, 
tell us a little bit about your thoughts of uh, of Naroda. He inspired this podcast, and he, is he? I think he's a model for poetry. He's a tremendous. He's a tremendous figure, um, in 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 the way he thinks about poetry, in the way he wrote, and his commitment to making poetry for people. But there are many sides to Pablo Neruda. Um, and uh, and the political his most overtly political is not always his greatest. Mm-hmm. Um, his greatest is his reach for other people that you get in say Canto General or in the the celebratory odes. I also like the three books of 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 of, of human poems that he wrote, the desolate poems um, of residents on Earth that were early. But there's the love poet. Love mm-hmm. poems are breaking out all over his body. There's the explicitly political poems. There's the epic of Canto General. Um, there are the odes and the poems that I especially like resonance on earth of what it means to be a person walking around on the earth. Um, so yes, I think he's a very intuitive poet, um, a very, very rich. It just kind of kept coming out of him. He's a very uneven poet. Um, he wrote a lot of bad poems. Uh, he wrote some bad political poems. Um, whenever he tried to be ex- overtly political, he had some mistakes in his thinking he was so blinded by where he came from that he embraced communism. He had a moment where he believed in Stalinism. Yeah. Um, he just, he, he, he had, he wasn't a great political thinker, but he was a great political person um, in his, his feeling of humanity for other people and to include the poor, the unknown, the ordinary. He's tremendous for us that way. And of course he was wildly inspired by Walt Whitman. Um, we were talking earlier about this uh, trip I'm going to make with Steve Zeitlin of City Lore down to uh, Galax, Virginia, to to garner poems from the Fiddler's Convention, and you were talking about how it, if if you get the poli- if if you're looking for the political poems because of the the it's where I'm from politically is the theme of this this of, of these poems um, that. You're not going to find it. But what was it you said? You said something. If you're looking for class, class. Yeah. I mean, what, you know, we like to believe that class doesn't exist in America, but of course, it does exist. Um, and what I'd say is the part of where I'm from politically, the part that's interesting to me about that is where I'm from. And then when people write where they're from and they describe the lives they've actually lived, that's incredibly enriching. I don't think poetry is that great when it tells you how to vote. Whenever poet takes stands, I mean, poets need to take stands like other people, but when they tell you how to vote, when they're didactic, political poetry goes off the rails. But when poetry, political poetry describes the world that one comes from, the world that one lives in, that's the world of Cesar Vallejo. That's the world of William Blake. That's the world of Christopher Smart. That's the world of Walt Whitman. The, the description of where I'm from that includes people's lives. And part of the task of poetry is to continually enlarge itself so that no one is left out. Whenever get poetry gets too up there in the upper classes, then it leaves out people whose ordinary lives are passing. And part of the task of poetry, the work of poetry, is to describe everyone's lives, as many people as possible. And so whenever certain kind of lives are getting left out of poetry, poetry needs to change and expand. And of course, oral poetry has always done that. Um, but what, you, you know, what you're trying to do to, is bring together the oral and the written and the poetry of all classes um, and, and, and make sure that no one is excluded. And that means partly the poetry of everyday life. Yeah, and uh, I think that the the changes that the 
world is going through now are, are you know, mirrored in the way that the changes in poets' voices are, you know, from everywhere are starting to be heard in a way that challenges um, that that status quo. That's, that's but, but, you know, even subject matter is political. For a long time, women were left out of poetry because domestic experience wasn't considered important. That mostly poetry was the great poetry was the poetry of history um, or the poetry of, of, of great deeds, epic poetry. And epic poetry leaves out women. Um, I mean, in other words, ordinary experience of women in the kitchen, of women's domestic lives, of people having children, half the world, for God's mm. sake, was left out of poetry. And so poetry had to re start claiming the territory. And women had to start claiming the territory that the world they'd actually lived in was important. And now with the, you know, with with Joy Harjo as a poet laureate, with uh, Ada Limon coming in, we, you know, with um, Tracy K. Smith and Natasha Trethewey, with the way, the way the Poets Laureate of the U.S. are going now, is to wake up to, uh, to you know, the, uh, those other voices. That's right. As many voices. That's right. It's what Whitman said, I hear America singing, the, the, the many voices I hear, the many carols I hear. No, no one had, had, had ever stood at street level the way Whitman did before. And when he, when he writes, I hear America singing, um, he describes ordinary working people in a way that no one, not even Wordsworth, had done before. But there was a promise in that poem that he didn't keep, and the promise that America hasn't kept, which is actually to include all the people. I mean, that's why Langston Hughes came along and wrote, I too, I too sing America, because yeah, yeah. he, he felt left out. And so, but the promise there, which is the ideal of our republic, is that all people are created equal. And that's the great promise of America. And we keep breaking that promise, but poetry keeps restoring us to it and keeps reminding us of it, that all people are created equal and that this is an American ideal. And Whitman made that promise and Langston Hughes helped, you know, helped us to fulfill it. I think that that's a prophecy there and a good place for us to end our podcast. Um, wow. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks, man. Thanks, listen. Man. Pleasure to talk about yeah, poetry. I, you know, Ed, early on, you said uh, that you started to become a poet by um, whenever you heard a name of a poet, you go read them. Yeah. Well, if you're finished with your Duende poem out there, listeners, please write get a list of all the poets that have been mentioned in this podcast and go read them. <laughs> you might add Ed Hirsch to the list too. We think we said his name. Thanks very much, Ed, for being here. Thanks, Bob. Love Good you. Good to be with you. Love you too. To learn more, hear more from Ed, visit the Poetry is Bread podcast page. Next, Into the Bake Shop of Words is Idra Novi, novelist, translator, essayist, critic, and poet. Well known as a translator, she's known for her work with Clarice Lispector and many others. Her review of Mieko Kawakami's All the Lovers in the Night appears in a recent issue of The Atlantic. And she's published two novels, Ways to Disappear, notable in that the main character never appears in the novel, <laughs> which is set in a uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquezian South America. Her second novel, Those Who Knew, 
is a kind of Me Too story from within the ranks of a revolution reminiscent of Cuba or Nicaragua, notable for including a hilarious Dada play by a flamboyant Almodovarian character. And then she's got the forthcoming Take What You Need, notable for the fact that I haven't read it yet, but I'm looking forward to when it appears this fall from Penguin Random House. Idra Novi, hello, and welcome to Poetry is Bread. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be on this podcast with you. Oh, me too. So let's get right into it. From the beginning, your birth. As a writer, I mean, as a poet and writer. I mean, was there a piece of literature or a poem that woke up the writer in you? Well, I grew up in the Allegheny Mountains of Appalachia, where poetry is um, not the bread. Um, and I, I, Cornbread? <laughs> well, I mean, more gobs, pierogies. But I think that, um, I, you know, there were there was a little poetry in my house. My dad had a copy of um, a Gerard Manley Hopkins book from college that he had around. And there was also a book from Emily Dickinson and Maya Angelou. Like that was all we had. And I remember sitting in the basement and sort of copying out by hand the Emily Dickinson poems. And there wasn't anybody who told me to do that. There wasn't anyone who encouraged me to do that. And I re there, we had an old typewriter and I would um, do sort of like plays in verse that I would then sort of read to my family and I put on in the backyard um, with kids in the neighborhood. And I just think it was just in my nature because I'd never seen anybody talk about doing these things. They about just occurred how old to me. Were you? Probably eight. Wow. Yep. Yeah. That's when it that's when it can hit. It just hit. You're born the poet. So do you remember? It was inexplicable. Love that part, <laughs> the mystery. Um, tell us so what was the name of one of these plays? What you know, what was it about? Oh, I don't know. They, they, it was like one of them was called like Roaming Through Numerica, which I, I mean, it was a very, it was Great everyone. Title. Well, thank you. I mean, there was sort of like, like almost Sarah Rule like verse plays, which of course influenced the Dada-esque um, playwright uh, that you mentioned in, in my second novel. And this new novel coming out, Take What You Need, is set in the Allegheny Mountains where I grew up. And it's the first time I have a whole book set there. I think it, I've been circling those mountains for 10 books and three genres. So this is the first time I think, you know, I whatever reached my fourth decade of life. And I was like, I need to just actually think about that place in a deep way and, and think about what's it like to be an artist there? You know, what's it like to become, to recognize your artistic self in a place where there's a lot of indifference to art? You know, I mean, you can yeah. drown in the indifference to art there. Yeah, I know. I, you know, I'm from Harlan, Kentucky, you know, and uh, of course, there's a lot of storytelling that goes on yeah. there. But as far as the poetry, the, you know, George Ella Lyon was a poet laureate of Kentucky, and she lived right down the road from us in Harlem. And uh, she found the poetry in the phone numbers of the people there. Then there were only four digits. You know, you didn't use the first three digits. That's how deep into Appalachia it was. You know. So listen, um, your recent review of uh, Kawakami's All the Lovers in the Night begins by referencing Margaret Atwood, Michael Ondaatje, Wole Soyinka as writers who began as poets. You could just as easily, easily reference Emily Bronte, Hemingway, and Paul Beatty, and yourself. So that's <laughs> what I want to get to. What do you make of this, uh, the poet into the novelist? 
Well, I think if you come from poetry, you're moving through images and through sensory description. And also the sentence is like your unit of meaning and you write off the ear. So I think I bring all of that to the way I approach novels. And I also think that I, you end up doing unusual roots to storytelling. And I think that that can lead to stylistic innovation. You know, I'm not a very conventional writer. And mm -hmm. I think that when you are approaching prose and your habits of mind are the habits of mind of a poet, it's very image driven. You know, I think about what is, how does this object correlate to larger meanings? Like I think it's sort of the, the tools of poetry. I bring them to prose. I think that's just how I move through that's, the novel. That's a very clear direction that uh you know that a poem can take as it as it spreads its wings and be, and goes to the end of the page you know i i loved the example that you used uh in that review two work friends ascend to an apartment their heels clang quote and this is this is the author kawakami out of sync on the steel stairs and then you respond from this specificity the sonic resonance of it, the reader knows that their visit will involve some kind of unacknowledged disharmony. To me, that's really digging. It's like a close read of a, of a piece of prose that you'd only associate with, with poetry. You know, yeah. they, they're walking up the stairs and there's a, the, they're out of sync when they're in their, in their, in their heel clomps. You know? <laughs> that's beautiful. So, how, you know, does do these things pop out at you as you're reading them? I think so. I think, I mean, you know, there's many novels I don't finish or I get, you know, galleys and they sort of turn me off because I think there isn't, um, I think the, the novels that come alive for me is when there's an attention to bodily experience, to what you see and smell of a person in their body in the world and like, I think for me, that's because, you know, I, I sort of think of language and meaning as a poet. And then how can you build that out into a complicated story? Because I think what I love about novels is the amount of subtext. Novels are capacious. You can just throw everything in there. You know, I can throw in my 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 love of playwriting that came from when I was a kid mm. growing up and putting on plays in the backyard with this new novel I wanted to write about welding and scrapyards and making art out of discards. And, you know, what do you do with the discarded region and turning it into art? So I think that I couldn't do in a poem. I needed a novel to do that, you know. But then I also want to bring my 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 ability to find hopefully some sort of subtext out of thinking about the way two people relate in a, in a quiet moment. So we've been talking about the detail of the detail here. Yeah. How, but how about the big picture? Do, do, how, what kind of research did you do for this uh, for this new novel? That's a good question. You know, I, a number of years ago, I when we had the last administration, I had um, this moment where people were saying, you got to go home. You got to if you come from these places where, you know, my town voted for Obama twice and then it went for Trump to go home and like talk to people. My family's been there for 100 years. So I wanted to go home and say, what's going on? And, you know, how's this happening? And um, and some people said things were just incredibly gross and disappointing. But I also found that the people who had the most interesting answers were the people who had a relationship to art. And that those were the most unconventional people. And then I think that there's been a real flattening of the way we talk about who's in Appalachia and what they're doing there. So I thought, how? what is a point of entry for us to sort of see Appalachia in a way that's not dehumanizing? Mm -hmm. And I think it's for thinking about the unknown artists there. 
and what they have to sort of open up our ways of thinking about this country because we're in such a culturally divided time. Exactly. You say that uh, that your artist friends there were voting for Trump. Is that no, no, they no. were not. Okay, they were not. Okay. But I'm, I'm no, no, absolutely not. But I, no one was asking them what was going on. Um, People, all the media were all pulling up to the same house to get the same comments from the same racist. Don't jerk. tell me the New York Times was at the diner. <laughs> but of course. And so I think there's a way that, you know, we could complicate our thinking. We could think about how mm -hmm. how could we reshape Appalachia if there was more funding for arts there, if there were more programs for kids to sort of light their imaginations. Like how, how could we move the country forward with sort of new ways of thinking about um, about art and culture? I'm voting for you. <laughs> so let's let's switch the topic here a little bit. How did the idea of translation, your translating, come to you? Well, you know, this is something I was thinking about recently because, you know, James Wright has these poems that were about Ohio, which not far from where I grew up. And he was very much drawn to translate Cesar Vallejo. You know, he was translating all these Spanish language poets. And I think that you know, the syntax of where he grew up in Ohio just was limiting for him. And so he was very much drawn to learn from these poets he admired in other languages and, and through, as a translator. And I think that happened for me too. You know, like there was nothing was, I knew I loved to write, but I just needed to sort of get away from, from that area. And so, I mean, I love the poems of James Wright, but I also think there's a way that he got away from that through translation and then brought back these new aesthetic ideas and he wrote these amazing surrealist poems, you know, about these women sort of going under the water and coming up the other side. Mm -hmm. And there's just like these incredible images that I think he did through these gorgeous translations of Cesar Vallejo. So mm -hmm. I never, I, so I think in a way that translation for me, um, I love championing writers who I think um, we will appreciate in English and and to bring in that fresh air of new voices. And I learn from them. I, 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 I think that translation is, for me, an intrinsic part of my practice as a writer. Wow. So did, how about learning these languages? I mean, you translate from the Portuguese, I guess, primarily. Spanish, and from Spanish. Spanish. Yeah. But do you have, you, you translated Farsi? Yes. Well, that was a co-translation. So my my co-translator, Ahmad Nadalizadeh, is from Iran. So I came on sort of as a co-translator where Ahmad was doing the first version. So this is for our translations of Gaurus Abdomalikian that came out um, with Penguin last year, uh, Lean Against This Late Hour. And Ahmad would do the translation. And then I would come on because, you know, it, his, his, his English is his second language and we would work on it. And we had such a great time because I was touring for one of my novels and I would talk to Ahmad, but I was, you know, my flights were always late and I'm walking in the airport. We had these great conversations and he would teach me about Iranian literature and I would mention to him something about translation. And we just had like a very clear sense of what each of us brought to the project. And we were eager to sort of learn and collaborate. And it was a really beautiful experience. So the, when you're translating um, in into a language that you're fluent in, which yeah. I assume is there with Portuguese and Spanish, then um, how do do you begin when you're reading the original, yeah. the mother tongue? Are you does it? How does it flow into the English? Do you have do you sit there and think? about the, I what think the I best this, translation is? I mean, I've translated so many different books at this point that I think I, I just do it automatically in my right. mind. 
You know, like if I'm somebody speaking to me, my mind just sort of almost the way like simultaneous interpreters do. But that doesn't mean I found the alchemy yet. You know, like I think you have to get it on the page so you can spin it into sort of lyrical gold. So there's the one thing which is just, you know, the you're just getting the meaning and then there's the sort of spinning it. So the the poet I've been translating most recently is a poet from Spain, uh, a Spanish poet from Madrid, Luis Munoz. And um uh, one of his poems that I co-translated with um, another poet novelist, Garth Greenwell, who's a friend of mine, we're co-translating Louise's poems, um, just came out last week in the Poetry Review in the UK. That sounds like a great, like a great project. Why don't you read us um, one of his pieces? Sure. There were four poems that just came out this week. Um, and this is Luis Munoz's poem that I co-translated with Garth Greenwell. It's called Elegy Often Postponed, and he wrote it for Marie Cruz Bilbao. <clears throat> I remember him outside of memory, in front of me, smiling at the sun, white hair standing on end, invisible water plating his cheeks, one hand shielding his eyes. In a crowded space, crisp voices and funnels of people like pollen, like the one we're walking through, with a mixture like this of astonishment and street. Oh, there you have it. Speaking, it's almost like a, an imagist poem. Yes, you know, I think it. that's why I love it. Yeah, yeah. So um, let's take somebody like Lispector. Yeah, you know Clarice. Um, your your translations. Um, well, uh, you know all the people you, that you translate. They're not the they're not like the uh, popular writers. You seem to pick writers who are well. She is now because of you, I guess. But uh, you seem to pick writers who do have that kind. Who are like in literary bent. Let's call it. You know, who really are, uh, you know, how do you go about picking who you're going to uh, to translate then? I don't know. I guess it sounds maybe it's a cheesy thing to say, but I think I just sort of follow my heart. Something speaks to me and it's something that I think is um, saying something meaningful and in an unexpected way that I think I want to share with other people. That's usually a sign that it's worth translating, you know, that it's subversive, it's stylistically exciting. It, there's something going on in terms of um, both the way it's said and what it's saying, but both of those, um, I just, the kind of thing you want to leave your room and share with somebody else. Then I think, oh, maybe this is something to translate. I think it comes from reading something that I'm excited about. And I think that other people, their lives would be enriched by reading it too. So tell us a little bit about Clarice Lispector. She's certainly having a moment right now and uh, well-deserved. There are people who say that uh, she doesn't write. She conjures up these words. It's more magical than it is writing. I think for women writers in the 20th century and certainly lots of writers of um, other backgrounds, you know, non-European <laughs> backgrounds, that there was a sort of devaluing of um, unconventional work. And I think that Clarice did have this calling that just these 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 novels came to her. She said she didn't have a direct um, sort of person that she was writing back to, that they just sort of were like visitations that came to her. She was originally from uh, the the Ukraine and and and, and left because of pogroms. Her family was Jewish and they moved to Brazil. And I think it's interesting because she was always sort of seen in Brazil as a foreigner, though she had been there since she was two years old um, and um, or maybe even younger. I think maybe she came when she was a baby. Um, so so that's I think that she had a lisp. And so people thought it was an accent, but it wasn't. I mean, you just think of all these ways that she was sort of miscast and, and misseen. And and I think that the, the none of that stymied her. You know, she stayed true 
to the art that she needed to make. And I think that's why it's lasted. You seem to be so entangled with her that you even wrote a book about her in your own <laughs> poetry. You yes. know? So um, how did that come about? Tell us about The Visitor. Well, um, some of those poems, I think, will come out in this new book of poems that I'm, I'm finishing, but um, they came out in a chapbook a couple of years ago. But I think when you translate someone who's not alive and you're making choices, you don't know how that, you know, that writer would agree or not. If I'm translating Luis or when I was translating this book with Ahmad of Garus, I could email Garus. What do you think of this choice? But with Clarice, she's dead. I can't ask her. So it was this one way conversation. Um that I um, had to sort of answer in my mind. And so I think that it felt like an, uh, like an epistolary poem. It was like a letter to someone who couldn't answer. And so I ended up writing these epistolary poems because I was writing to her in my mind. Dear Clarice, I hope you like this word I chose for you. <laughs> <laughs> and so they became poems. I mean, I think that's what those poems are for, right? You write a letter to someone in a poem because you can't reach them otherwise. Because if you could just send them the letter, why would you make it a poem? So uh, exactly, as as Frank O'Hara said, you know the, the, that the uh, the new art, the new poetry is going to be calling somebody up on a telephone and, and telling them the poem. So. Yes, but if you put it on the page, it's because there's no way to tell them otherwise. That's the answer. So, do you want to read one of the visitor poems? Yes, this is from the poems Clearly the Visitor that was in a chapbook and is now in this new collection poems I'm working on now. La Prima Victoria. She expects nothing but to witness our lives and find kindness. And why shouldn't she? But for the boiling water my partner spills on my arm and the fuck's sake that escapes my mouth, now the snout of the spitting mammal in me. If there's a craft to the failing of simple expectations, I have mastered it and majestically. But when there's something that must be said, it must be said, the specter says, of a woman entering an empty room and finding a version of herself so dark it makes her pause and really see it, how she's no better than the cockroach in her closet. And so she eats it. Oh, oh. <laughs> well, fantastic poem. You, you said this is from a new collection. This is, it's been a while since you published a book. Yes. Of well, poems, this is. I mean. Yeah, of poems. Yes, it's been a it's been a decade of of novels, but also of translating poems. So I yeah. have been working on poems, and they've been coming out. I had the poems that came out in poetry, and I have poems that came out. One recently came out in a public space, and um, other places. So you know, Tin House. I've had poems coming out, but they just um, not a full book. So I'm hoping that I'm getting closer now that this new novel is going into the proofs. So I can get back to poetry. So this one will be in that book. That's great. Do you have a title for it? Yeah, nearly. I okay. think it's the, or, 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 um, house sitting with approaching fire. It's still up in the air. <laughs> I thought you meant it was, you nearly had a title, but nearly is uh, very close by. Yeah. I think it's probably be called house sitting with approaching fire. Here it comes. <laughs> Listen, you spend a lot of time in Chile, home of Pablo Neruda, very special to this podcast. We take our title from his writing. Um, Tell us, what do you think that Neruda can teach us about being an artist and an activist? Well, I think, um, you know, Neruda's poetry casts a pretty, you know, large shadow over Chilean poetry. And I think that something that we're seeing now is that sometimes those big shadows, even if you are an artist and activist, it's important to see what other work is happening underneath that shadow, you know? And I think there's more celebration now of Gabriela Mistral, mm -hmm. of Elvira Hernandez, um, you know, thinking about, you know, incredibly talented um, Chilean writers that are getting seen now, like Nona Fernandez, who I think, you know, has 
had four or five books that were published in Chile that never got published. They're now coming out with Grey Wolf in the U.S. So I think that Neruda brought attention to Chilean literature and the um, dynamism of Chilean literature. And so what, the thing that I think is most exciting is um, that that's leading to interest in other Chilean writers who weren't um, regarded or celebrated earlier in their careers. Well, true enough. And of course, that question was just meant as a lead in for me to ask you whether or not you could read us a uh, a poem about your activism, about politics. Uh, um, well, you know, I think given the state of our own country here, I've been thinking a lot about sort of forced pregnancy and trying to control um, what women do with their bodies. And I, you know, there's been a lot of signs of protest saying, you know, if men could get pregnant... Um, you know, you could get an abortion at every Dwayne Reed or something like that, you know? So it's, it's just really interesting how differently it would be. And it's been fascinating to see this because I wrote this poem, you know, a number of years ago, but I think the sentiment is certainly speaking to this era where we're seeing, um, you know, abortion is access is being um, controlled and curtailed in terrifying ways. So this is a poem about a man in a forced pregnancy, the man who gave birth to a panda. He had to have it, his mother told him. How could he not, with so few left in the world? He felt heaviest at night with the miracle of it. He was a vessel now, a receptacle for a threatened being. What if he rose too fast and killed it? Or maybe his stillness would do it, too much sitting around, stunned and hungry. And what if the bear emerged alive and another formed in its place? Would he have to have that one too, and another one after that? He dreamed of the panda's tiny eyes opening inside him, the doctor's wide incision, a whirring pain, and then the furry thing emerging, the bear turning to him as to a stranger, and whether that would be it, his bit part in the history of the future. <laughs> oh, yes. So uh, tell us another poem, please. Oh, well, um, when we were talking about the title for this, you know, book, Nearly Complete, this is called Nearly. Um, uh, and this uh, came out, oh, well, gosh, with um, Poem a Day. It was chosen for Poem a Day um, with Academy of American Poets. And um, uh, this is uh, Nearly. When we slid out of the lane, when my sleeve caught fire, while we fought in the snow, while the oncologist spoke, before the oil spilled, before your retina bled, before the kids at the curb before the turn to the forest, after the forest turned to ashes, after you escorted my mother out as I led your father in, as the dolphin swam the derelict canal, while the cameras filmed it dying, while the blackout continued, when the plane dipped, when the bank closed, while the water, while the water, and we drank it. Mm. Beautiful poem. Thanks, Good encapsulation Bob. of our moment. Thanks very much, Idra Novi, for being our guest here on Poetry is Bread. I'm Bob Holman, and thank you for listening to Poetry is Bread. Subscribe to our podcast to get notifications of new episodes, or check us out at BoweryPoetry.com. The podcast is co-produced by Ram Devanini and Flavia Hocha with Rataplax. This podcast series is funded by the Citizen Diplomacy Action Fund, which is sponsored by the U.S. Department of State, with funding provided by the U.S. government and implemented by Global Ties U.S. in partnership with the Office of Alumni Affairs in the Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs. Additional support from New York State Council on the Arts, Governor of New York State, 
and the New York State Legislature. See ya.